0: Welcome to Exec Insights, conversations about Australian business and the changing world. I'm your host Kate Joyner from QUT's Graduate School of Business. Today we're talking about the business of creating Australian cities that we all want to live in. Not just live but thrive. Australia is an urbanised country with most of us living in the coastal capital cities. What does the future hold for our cities and what will it take to build inclusive, resilient, productive and sustainable cities for all? Today I'm talking to Brooke Dixon. Brooke is Managing Director of Dallas Delta, driving smart city and digital transformation for clients around the world. He's also Vice-President of the Australian Smart Communities Association and Brooke is also a Churchill Fellow, something that I'll explore in this interview a little later. So hi, Brooke. How are you?
1: Good, Kate. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be
0: here. Good. Yeah, we have just had a really great session about uh, smart cities and designing for smart cities. So Brooke's just come straight from that, so we really appreciate that. (laughs) You're just fresh from all those exciting issues. So just to kick us off, so tell us more about Dallas Delta
1: and the work that you do. Thanks, Kate. Yeah, no, look, Delos Delta is a, a young company, a growing and thriving company, I'm happy to say. What we do is we work with our clients uh, locally, nationally, and internationally to understand uh, there are possibilities and opportunities to apply digital technology to their business, their city, uh, a government, a community, a region, or a precinct, and allow them to apply it in such a way that it makes them more productive, sustainable, and livable. Uh, and we're doing really cool things like, for instance, working with colleagues in Barcelona who have this fantastic prioritisation methodology, which is inclusive, it brings the community along, and we're very much hoping to bring that to Australia very soon.
0: Prioritisation, so that's um, in terms of being able to vote on issues that they want government to deal with? Have I got that right?
1: Or am I uh, more about when government or a community has a range of projects that they're considering, and, but they don't know how to prioritise them. So in this particular scenario, You can choose what uh, criteria you'd like to rank them against. You bring in your stakeholders into the meeting room and you go through a methodical process of doing so. And in Barcelona, they're finding remarkable benefits in not only actually delivering projects and products that uh, have remarkable community benefit, but also people are happy because they're part of the process. They're part of the process. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool stuff.
0: And so the technology enables that process to be quite easy uh for, the p- for people to participate in.
1: Exactly, exactly. Mm. It's really powerful in terms of its computational ability, mm. but also powerful in terms of its ability really to allow participation and deliberation and uh, I guess provide a democratic outcome. Too often in government these days, or in organisations for that matter, decisions are made in back rooms mm. uh, with cost-benefit analysis, with all sorts of assumptions made by uh, expert economists so to speak which really makes it hard for people to come along for the journey. So part of the smart city approach is bringing people along and providing complexity behind the veil of simplicity.
0: Mm. Yeah, which is the potential for technology. So always, I came from local government, that we talked about the, the three P's, I suppose, So that uh, decisions are made as a, sort of a creative tension between the politicians, the, um, the planners or the technocrats and the people. So, but often it was mostly about the first two and probably a lot about the politicians. <laughs> um, so it has the potential, again, to bring in that, that third P, which is the people, um, more into that triangle um, of decision-making. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh,
1: you're absolutely right. And uh, I think one of the, the P that sort of umbrellas it all is power. And certainly the way our democratic institutions have evolved, certain uh, power structures have come into place and that allows more power to be with politicians and uh, the party. Uh, less so with the people, but let's remember the democracy from the ancient Greek is about the deem, the people, and kratos, the power, power to the people. And uh, I'm a very big, strong advocate for that and believe that digital can uh, support that evolution.
0: Yeah, it also goes to um, in our public sector management program here, uh, we're very fond of the, um, the strategic triangle of Kagram and more. So that talks about public value as the centre um, of, uh, of, of government, what we're here to do. But often we don't know what the people uh, think of as value. Um, we're making a lot of assumptions about. So in local government, for example, we just always use a simple example. How many grass cuts do you need in your local park? And we deem that that is you know, a grass cut every month where people might be, think public value would be fine with um, two or three a year and we could spend the money somewhere else. So the, the potential for bringing people into the process could mean we could have more public value or because we could, um, we could uh, direct resources where they actually need to be directed. Uh, and also I think um, there's, there's not any money left in um, government to do things. So we, get, we, know, we don't solve things by throwing money at something, we have to make trade-offs. So it helps people bring into the process of making those trade-offs.
1: That's right, Kate. And uh, certainly uh, the other P you could throw around, because I do love alliteration, is again, and I've said it before, prioritisation. So once you understand the people, mm. and I do believe that in a smart city, we use technology to have deeper and more meaningful and broader conversations with our community. Uh, no longer should we just be satisfied with our town hall meetings where 10 people turn up or 300 page discussion papers We're only four people who are very, very interested, uh, read it and put a submission in. We need to use these new technical methods to speak across our community, but also to engage with that 80 to 90% who are all often very supportive of progressive uh, policies and programs, but not engaged in the process so look there's remarkable opportunities there kate and i do believe that uh, we've got a lot to learn from our friends in europe and asia in this front australia's been traditionally quite conservative but there are cool things happening around australia i have to say
0: so tell us some of those cool things that are happening in europe and us that we might be able to learn from
1: yeah good good question kate and it is very exciting and uh, i was very lucky to travel around the world on a church fellowship last year to see smart cities in europe in asia and north and south america I'm going to give you a little example from a less developed uh, country, Lima in Peru, South America. They don't have as much money as we do in Australia and and, in Europe and Northern America. However, they understand that digital technology is the future, and they're doing cool things like taking out old shipping containers, taking them to the schools so the kids can engage with technology. That's really cool, that's really powerful, but it's also a really simple way of accelerating smart city uh, capacity and maturity. I'll also give you another example from North America. North America are fantastic at taking smart technology and then building smart business models and smart financing models around them. I'll give you an example from San Jose where Philips, the company, came to the council, upgraded 800 streetlights for the council at no cost. No cost to the council, therefore no cost to the citizens. Why was that free? Because 50 of those streetlights had micro-cell capability on them. That Philips could then sell that data capacity to the big telcos. So Philips is happy, they make some money. The city is happy, they get new assets, in fact LED lights that save them millions of dollars annually in energy cost. And the citizens are happy because uh, they get better lighting outcomes in terms of amenity and safety. They also get less black spots. That's really cool. That's smart city in action, but it's also smart business models, and I think it's fantastic. And Australia's smart got a lot to learn. Smart
0: models, yeah, that's right. So it's the, uh, that's a great example. So we we all win. I suppose it's the same here in Brisbane, but, and in a lot of cities where we have the ad shell, um, advertising, which pays for the actual bus shelter. So uh, yeah, it's um, that, yeah really smart business models. We need to create um, yeah to think smarter too, so that everyone can win. That's right. Yeah. And,
1: and look. I think too often, we fall into two traps with the smart city and digital city dialogue. First of all, we make it all about technology. Mm. And technology is really important ingredient, of course, but uh, we've got to think about investment, smart investment, smart people, smart processes, smart regulation, smart governance. So we've got to broaden out the discussion and not just think that we can throw technology in a city and that makes it intelligent. That's simply not the case. I think the second mistake that we made is that uh, we don't have that engagement with the people as well and we often think that to invest or to uh, leverage the value of these new propositions, we just have to throw more money at it and it is not the case. We can think more broadly, our good friends in North America are doing just that and we could learn from them and that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, because there won't be the money to throw at it. <laughs> there simply <laughs> no, there, isn't. Kate. There is, isn't the money. Yeah, uh, and you're giving great examples about um, you know the, just the power. You know, the digital um, can uh, enable people to come together to force uh, to force change to regulation. And of course, Uber is a great example of that. So that um, when you were talking about the P, the power. So it has the potential to, to bring the power to change regulation that isn't working for the people and lessens the power of the, of the lobby groups um, and the interest groups, which really at the moment I think are a, a threat to the, you know, the good functioning of our Westminster system you know, when we start getting tied up too much with interest groups.
1: Kate, I'm going to say two things about that. The first is that regulation, regulation that is out of date, that's archaic, that's uh, anachronistic is one of the greatest barriers to smart and sensible transformation of our cities. Now That behoves both government and the community to be more proactive about how we're reviewing our regulations and modernising it, and not getting ourselves into situations like we did in most cities across Australia, where we're enforcing old transport regulations simply because uh, a new business model emerged, i.e. Uber and Lyft and so forth, that the current existing transport regulations, which in many cases were 50 to 60 years old, or based on laws that were that old, simply weren't functioning anymore. In Canberra, I have to say and I'm very proud to have been part of those reforms, we were proactive on that front, we were the first capital city in the world, first capital city in the world to regulate for ride sharing, that's for ride sharing before a company like Uber actually entered the market and the rest of Australia followed that example. So it's really powerful and can I say that the reason that worked was because the Chief Minister in the ACT engaged with the community and understood that the community were supportive of this change. Yes, unfortunately, some taxi plate holders were going to bear some costs. However, I should say in the ACT, regulation on taxis is coming down, Mm -hmm. which is part of providing that level playing field in the rideshare and taxi market, which is a good principle to abide by. Uh, And what we have to remember too, is that when we think of this digital disruption, we often get caught up in demonising Uber and Airbnb and these companies as multinationals who are there for a buck. And don't care about anything and are happy to walk all over regulation, remember we should all remember that it's people that are driving it. We're the ones that want to use the platforms, we're the ones that want convenience, we're the ones that want to order uh, food and cars and new accommodation on our phones. It's about people and regulation has to catch up with what the people want and politicians and politics and Parliament, they all have to be on board with that because the power to the people.
0: Power to the people. So, yeah, we've really got the, the power with our numbers, you know, to uh, uh, yeah, to change some of the things that are yeah, constraining our ability to thrive in our cities. Yeah. So what's some regulation that you really think is ripe for, to move that's constraining, um, you know, the, the good and prosperous cities?
1: Absolutely. Uh, look, I believe planning regulation. Planning regulation, it is uh, ubiquitous. It is one of the uh, the pillars of our modern city. In fact, cities for as long as we can remember always had some sort of regulation governing them in some way shape or form and in the modern world we really haven't got to a point where we've integrated uh, the way we regulate and govern the planning and development of our cities with digital technology and I'm not just talking about the integration of new digital tools such as 3D modelling with planning guidelines which is fantastic and it's allowing us using those models to speed up the interface between developers and the city and the community but also bring in the community because the community understands a 3D rendering of a city and very few of us unfortunately understand schematics and engineering diagrams. So there's a remarkable opportunity there to modernise our planning regulations and deliver not only efficiency and productivity for government and for uh, our cities but also to engage the community in a process of co-creation. I'll give you a little example of something that was changed recently in uh, the Australian Capital Territory, and that was regulation, which enshrined uh, notifications out to the community that must be in newspapers. Mm. They must be in newspapers. Now, this is something that obviously went back to when we were all reading newspapers, and was a very effective means of communication. But not so much anymore, and the ACT government very. Uh, uh, carefully and very sensibly, in my opinion, uh, moved to act on that and to modernise those regulations so we could actually use new digital channels and not spend hundreds of thousands of dollars unnecessarily each year in old uh, communication mechanisms and thereby, but also, communicating with the people where they wanted to be communicated with, no longer in newspapers, which most people, unfortunately, weren't picking up.
0: No, and uh, yes, and in fact we probably won't have newspapers at all <laughs> to read those kind of notifications, unfortunately, uh, which will be quite sad. Well, um, that's all fabulous, but you choose to live in Canberra. Just um, one of the nice examples you gave of, of, of just being able to get rid of parking meters. That was probably one of your smaller examples, but, uh, but really quite interesting. So we were having a conversation before the podcast about living in a frictionless city. So taking parking metres away from us, I think, is, was a big leap forward, would you
1: agree? Oh, completely. Look, Kate, I said two years ago when I was a public servant in Canberra, uh, when uh, they let me on the radio, that I wasn't in the habit of, habit of speculating, But I would like to predict that in two years' time, the old coin-fed meters, I'm sure you've all dealt with them, the ones that tick, 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 and then they go green and then they go red, are very heavy, metallic, uh, wonderful creatures, but they were were destined for museums within two years. And I'm happy to say that the ACD government beat me, in fact, by two months. And uh, had it under the two years, they removed the very last old coin-fed parking meters. And indeed, uh, the, the only place you can find them now is in the scrap heats. Or in hipsters living rooms or indeed in museums. But of course in Canberra we still have the uh, the parking machines on the street where you can pay with credit card and so forth uh, which is fantastic but what we're going to see more and more is the removal of those machines on our streets and the movement to phone based transactions. Uh, Every time I park in Canberra now I get straight out of my car I'm walking to the coffee shop on my meeting and I'm paying on my phone. Mm -hmm. If for whatever reason, my parking expires and I can just update it on the fly uh, and top it up on my phone. Beyond that, which is fantastic because I tell you what, I hate walking to parking meters and back to the car to get money and then back yeah, to the parking meter and then back to the car to put the paper ticket on it and then having to run back from coffee to update the car. That's crazy. I do it all on my phone now and what's going to happen, Kate, which as we've talked about before, is we're going to move more towards the, the inboard computers in the cars or the e-tag system where we pay our tolls they will detect when we're parked, there'll be an account-based system that's automatically debited, which will be much more efficient, much more convenient, uh, and really reduce the friction in the city. And that's, know, that's amazing. It makes us all
0: happier people, I reckon. We have yeah. to find all those kind of examples, I
1: think. That no more parking rage, Kate. Wouldn't it be amazing? <laughs>
0: Yeah, no more parking rage. Exactly right. Um, which kind of we'd probably need to let you on your way. So I'll just ask our final that's interesting question. So this is where we ask each guest something that's they've read or they've seen that um, strikes them as something. I guess the world's changing, or that's interesting. I'm coming up blank with it with a, an example, but I'll throw it to my guest, Brooke. What's what's interesting?
1: Well, look, I'm a I'm a student of history, uh, and I studied ancient history. In fact, and uh, in fact, that's where my company name comes from. The delos or the derlos in ancient Greek is about showing the way and making clear. Showing the way. So
0: us, is the purpose. Showing the way, making it clear, making
1: manifest, Mm. uh, explaining. And the delta, of course, is the change, and that's what we're all about. So I draw on my historical training and uh, my historical interests very much in my business life, but I've been reading a lot about the American Revolution and uh, the the democratic foundations of America. And I was very interested to find out, and I'm sure most students of American history know this, and all good Americans would, that the second and third presidents of the United States of America, uh, being John Adams, President John Adams, and then being President Thomas Jefferson, in fact, uh, died on the same day, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence, on the exact same day, and that day was The anniversary of the Declaration of Independence of July 4th. Mm, So that is fantastic and in fact, the last words of John Adams Mm -hmm. who had uh, uh, come to terms with Thomas and Jefferson, they were very good friends early in their career. They became uh, quite uh, at at, at enmity through their careers because they were opposite ends of the political spectrum. They had come to terms in their later life and become very good friends again, which was fantastic. They had a wonderful correspondence and the last words of John Adams was, uh, Jefferson lives. Jefferson lives. And in fact, unfortunately, Thomas Jefferson had died some hours before John Adams on the same day. But of course, the greatest symbolism was that uh, the essence of Thomas Jefferson and what he stands for, particularly through that Declaration of Independence, lives on and does today. And uh, that's an amazing story. And I'm really pleased to share it with you.
0: Brooke Dixon, thank you very much. And power to the people.
1: Power to the people.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Exec Insights. For more information about QUT's Executive Education programs, please search QUT Executive Education and you'll find a full range of our programs and services.